out in faith, the trump will sound. Good morning, fellowship. Hey, we're so excited you're here. I, we, we say this every single week, but if you are new, there's gonna be a QR code up here on the screen. Would you go ahead and scan that for us? 
even if you wouldn't consider yourself new, if you go, oh, I've been coming here for a little while, we just want to get the chance to know you. So we would love to buy you a cup of coffee, spend some time, hear your story, and just hear how we can help you. Hey, I'd also say thank you to those of you who have given to the gift in this season. Thanks so much for your generosity. We really appreciate you. So let's get to business. We got some Christmas details to cover. That's right, Christmas Eve is quickly approaching. All of you know, your children know, parents get ready. Uh, but we've got Christmas Eve services at three, four, and five. And so if you would, go ahead, jump online, RSVP for those. It just helps us understand and know who all is coming into what services. We'll also that day have traditional services at seven and nine. And you can RSV for those as well. Now, the crazy thing is that after Christmas Eve, this year, the day after Christmas Eve is Christmas. And I know that's true every year, but unlike every year, Christmas is on a Sunday. And so we'll actually have Sunday services. We'll be here at 9 and 1030, just like every Sunday. And we would love for you all to join us. So please come and worship with us Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. Hey, really quick, I want to introduce you to Chance Kane. Chance, come up here so everyone can see you. This is Chance Kane. Uh, he jumped on to staff with us in September. Is that's that right, right? That's right. So he's been on staff with us for a little while. He, can you tell everyone your role? Yeah, I am the FSM Springdale men's staff. So actually, Chance took my job, and you can tell because if he wanted the job, he had to dress like me. He didn't know that, but now he does. So uh, many of you know I've stepped onto the community team. I'm still helping with our student ministries, but a few months ago, Chance came on staff, and he's done an unbelievable job. And so he comes to us from Tyson and from the Oklahoma State Go Pokes. University. Go Pokes. Hey, right there. We got a Big yes, 12 fan in here. Tell us how your season ended. Hey, the Lord uses the last and the least is all I'm saying. The last so and the least. there's hope. There's hope. That's true for Razorbacks too sometimes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, would you tell everyone just for a second, let them know what, when you look forward to this job, what, what excites you about being in FSM, Springdale, and student ministries? The people. Actually, yesterday I got to go to Harbor's choir concert, and there are about 15 FSM students that were just standing there singing and there was this moment where they entered the concert and all the kids got to go into the crowd and just kind of sing around you and there are about four boys that were standing behind me just belting out at the top of their lungs and I got a little teary-eyed because yes the Lord has called me to ministry but more specifically than that he has called me to serve the families of Springdale and their students so the four kids Behind me, the kids that I get to play football with on Wednesday nights, the kids I get to worship with on Sunday mornings. And so my prayer for Springdale comes from 3 John, and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, our students, are walking in truth. And this morning, we actually get to see that and celebrate that in a tangible way as Derek leads us through a baptism. Hey, as Derek and the baptism crew make their way out, parents, Chance is actually gonna be in the foyer after this service, and so we would love for you to come and shake his hand, meet him, make acquaintance with him. We're so excited that he's on staff. Good morning, fellowship. This is Preston Marbury, and his parents, Patrick and Kim, have always been so faithful in sharing the gospel with him and taking him to church. But they said, Preston, when you're ready to receive Christ, we want you to come to us. And so about five weeks ago, Preston came to them and said, Mommy, Daddy, I wanna receive Christ. And so they came to church that Sunday looking for someone to talk to about how he could get saved. And so our family got out of the car, we were walking towards church that Sunday, and I saw Patrick and Kim, and I've known them for years, and so I said, hey guys, good morning, how are you guys doing? And Patrick said, well, Preston would like to receive Christ. Do you know someone we could talk to? I said, matter of fact, I do. I said, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we gathered around our family and his family and, and Preston prayed to receive Christ in the parking lot. Isn't that cool? And so, 
<clears throat> but isn't that a great example that a child would come to church expecting to meet Jesus? So Preston, good job. That's a great example for all of us. And so Preston, is it your testimony that you have received Christ and want to follow him all the days of your life? Awesome, buddy. Great job. Based on your testimony, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Congratulations, buddy. fellowship since 2014 when we moved back to Northwest Arkansas. We have two kids. I've been a Christian now for 25 years. The biggest source of joy for me is God's Word, and it hasn't necessarily always been the case for me. About five or six years ago, Kim kind of came to me with this thing called the Bible Project. It pretty much awakened a just a thirst for God's Word. I was looking at my Bible in a completely different way. All these stories that I had heard my entire life they brought on a completely new meaning and they felt like I was reading them for the first time. It has prompted just an incredible joy that the God of the universe has written this book, this story, and my Bible has become the most amazing, intriguing, beautiful book um, that I've ever come across. Well, I just pray that the thirst for His Word continues and, and never stops. I am not an expert on joy and I do not feel like I can be an expert to tell people how to find joy when it feels like every day is just a struggle to survive the chaos. The times when I can find joy would be practicing gratitude, looking at the positives and the blessings um, as much as I can in every day, being grateful that our children are healthy even though they may not want to eat the chicken because it has some brown spots on it. But just finding gratitude in all of those small things. Another way to find joy is serving in, in any, any way that you're serving. I think that um, in some ways I feel selfish because I feel like it gives me back more than I am giving to that person. It, it certainly um, gives you an immediate sense of joy. Being intentional about spending time in the Word, spending time praying to God, and being intentional in your relationships, that's, that's where you find joy, and I think that's how you help yourself to survive the chaos. Good morning. Uh, we're the Thorntons. This is Emmylou and Brooks, and uh, we're going to light the joy candle. <laughs> Hopefully not fall on it. I'm going to read our scripture this morning. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Luke 2, 10 through 11. Let us pray. O Lord God, grant your joy to us. For you have given us your Son, the fullness of God the fountain of unending joy, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand with us once again and let's celebrate his birth together. Sing it out together, angels heard on Your heavenly song. 
Christ whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King.
Syrian governor, a Roman census, an upheaval in each household to register in person, mandatory, period. A Nazarene making the trek from Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, lineage of great importance, the house of David. Joseph and his betrothed Mary, great with child, a scandalous tabloid of their day. Bethlehem's welcome, no room, a stable where none but paupers would consider. Mary's terror in labor pains, her tears and fears cried out as a child became a parent to a holy son. Wrapped in old rags, cradled in a filthy trough, the infant, the divine prince, slept in heavenly peace. Dear 
and your majesty in this place today. And what a humbling thought to think that the very God, creator of the universe, became a baby born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. God with us, Emmanuel. So God, may we experience the joy that is only found in your presence today. And as we hear your word, would we humble ourselves before your truth? We praise your holy name together in this, in this place. We pray. Amen. Well, it started off as a, I guess you would say a hobby for many. Uh, it started off a hobby and it's grown into this multi-million dollar industry with websites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. You're starting to know what I'm talking about, aren't you? Many of you have sent in your DNA with the hopes that you would find the link to your family members and be able to figure out kind of what's my genealogy or where did I come from? I've had several friends discover some pretty amazing things about themselves. It's been pretty impactful to their life. These, these businesses exist with all this data now. It's almost scary, isn't it? Not too long ago, I was at my mom's house, and I took a picture of a family tree my grandmother put together, and it's all written out. What's interesting, there's this William Barclay at the beginning of it, and I'm trying to figure out, like, where does our family fit into it? Like, we're not on the tree. It's, it's kind of funny, there's actually some places that have been erased, and like other names written in. I'm not, not sure quite how to, to understand that. I haven't asked too many questions. I was hoping that I would find, there's kind of two famous Barclays. There's the, the Barclay who wrote a commentary, so that would be the smart side. And then there's the Barclay Bank. You ever been to New York City or overseas and seen Barclay Bank? I was kind of hoping I was related to this one over here. That would help things out. But have you ever wondered about the genealogy of Jesus? Like, like, where does his line come to? And some of you are smiling because you've studied the Bible a lot and, and you know there's this messianic line. But it's pretty incredible when you look at it. And when the angel appears to Mary in the end of chapter one of Luke, we, we get some insight. If you would, look with me at Luke chapter one, verse 33. And it says this, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. There's some pretty powerful information here, and sometimes the genealogy of it gets lost. He says, he will be great, and will be called son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, what the angel said to Mary was pretty incredible. And if you remember, if you've seen it before, the angel speaks to Mary. And Mary kind of says, how can this be? Because she's a virgin and the things that need to happen in order for her to be pregnant haven't happened. And then the angel kind of sets her heart at peace and gives her this information and tells her what's going to happen. But two pieces of information kind of get lost there that, that the Most High will reign over the throne of his father, David, and will reign over, the, over Jacob's descendants forever. What does that mean? It's pretty interesting. If you look at Matthew chapter one, it's one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the Bible. But if you look at it originally, you're just kind of seeing the descendants kind of playing out there. It starts off like this. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it starts with the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of, and if you didn't see that, and you were going to fill that in, who would you think would have been listed there? Joseph, right? Joseph's the one in all the storybooks, right? He's the one that did kind of things right. He resisted temptation from Pharaoh's wife. He handled things really well when his family showed up and they treated him wrong. But it's not Joseph. Who is it? Judah. Judah and his brothers. And if you continue on, you'll see the whole genealogy of Jesus and some of the names you'll recognize and some of them you've never heard of. But if you, I've got a chart for you. If you chart it out, it looks like this. You have 14 generations from Abraham to King David. 
You have 14 generations from King David to the exile, and this was a very hard period for God's people. Matter of fact, I think Robert's got a class on it next semester in February on just the exile. And then you have 14 generations from the exile to the birth of Jesus. That's the genealogy of Jesus. There's some pretty amazing facts that go along with it. But I want to drill down into one, and that's this line of Judah. You have Jacob and his, and his 12 sons, and Judah's one of them. And Judah kind of had a little bit of a colorful life. I don't know if you remember, he's one of the ones that sold Joseph into slavery. There's this period, in, I think it's Genesis 38 or 39. There's some pretty strange things that go on. But he did some really good things, too. But I think from this passage, we're going to see some pretty amazing stuff. Look with me, if you would, at Genesis chapter 49. And we see Jacob's on his deathbed, and he's given blessings to all of his sons. And here's one of the things he says to his son Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. You see, some versions of the Bible actually translate that word he there as Shiloh, which means Messiah. You see, it's, it's, what he's saying here is the scepter will not depart from you, Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he, Shiloh, to whom it belongs, shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. It's, it's prophecy speaking of the coming Messiah, which you and I are able to look back on now. And what we see from this passage, and we're going to see in our passage today, is this. That God uses people, ordinary people like you and like me, to accomplish his purposes and his, in his timing. And we're going to see it in the life of what's probably a couple young adults, probably teenagers. Mary wouldn't have been more than 15 years old, probably younger. Joseph, we don't really know his age, but there's a, there's a good chance he'd have been in his teen years, maybe a little older. But we're going to see this play out in the life of some young adults. And my hope, it will challenge you as it's challenged me, that God wants to use us if we're available and willing to make room in our life. If you would, look at me with Luke, at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And here's what you're going to see, kind of three movements in this passage. The first movement is Luke is going to talk about the political setting of the day. It's kind of interesting. Oftentimes in the scriptures, there's not a lot of political or government talk, but we're going to see he's going to set up the, the passage with this political environment, and then he's going to move to the location of Bethlehem and, and why it's important. And then the last kind of scene we're going to see is this, this humble birth that takes place in this kind of interesting place. And we're going to see that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his purpose and his timing. If you would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll begin our study in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Canarius was governor of Syria. And so what's going on here is that Israel's under Roman rule. And there's this, there's this Caesar. His name is actually Caesar Augustus. It's not only a name, it's also a title. His, his actual name was Gaius Octavius. But they called him Caesar. Matter of fact, there's some, there's some, they've uncovered some things about this Caesar Augustus that he was referred to at times as the Savior of the world. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that, that, that God would choose to send the true Savior of the world during one whose title was Savior of the world? He would be um, replaced in AD 14 by Tiberius Caesar, the one who was ruling during Jesus' ministry and under whom Jesus was crucified. But in the next five verses, what you're going to see is the humble obedience, four humble acts of a husband and a wife, or I guess I should say a husband who is betrothed, or a, a young man who is betrothed to a young woman. But we would consider that marriage today. We're going to see incredible acts of humble obedience. Look at verse 3. 
And to everyone who went, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. The first act of humble obedience we're going to see is that Mary and Joseph, they went. And it sounds really simple, doesn't it? But oftentimes, the first act of humble obedience in our life is you just have to go. You know that time when you feel like God's knocking on your heart? Maybe that phone call you need to make, you don't want to make, or that conversation you need to have that you don't want to have. So oftentimes, the first act of humble obedience is just to go, and humbly and obediently, they left their town of comfort to go to Bethlehem. So we might ask the question, why? Why Bethlehem? Why why did they go? And if you look at Micah chapter five, verse two, and I think Rodney might have brought this up last week, but it's really good. Listen to this. This is from prophecy from a long time ago. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is prophecy about Bethlehem. And you see here that, that, that those, it's small in number, it's powerful, powerful in influence. And the one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, will come from Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary, they went. They went to Bethlehem. Now this is a, Bethlehem's like an 85 to 90 mile trip from Nazareth. And it's interesting here because you see it says they go up to Bethlehem. But us good Southerners know that if you travel from the south to the north, that's up, right? But if you look, I've got a map for you here. They're actually traveling from Beth, Nazareth, which is up north, to Bethlehem, which is down south. It doesn't make sense, does it? Matter of fact, anytime you're looking at a map of the Holy Land, you've got the, the Mediterranean Sea over here. You've got that body of water up top, that's Sea of Galilee. You've got the body of water down below, that's the Dead Sea. And up by the Sea of Galilee is Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary are coming from. And this, the, the town down below is Bethlehem, near Jerusalem. And they said they're going up to Bethlehem. It doesn't make sense to us, does it? But it's, a, it's an elevation difference. You see, we're driving, and so when we go up a hill, what do we do? We just put on the gas, don't we? For them, they tend to notice the hills more. If you ride a bike or you walk a lot and you, you walk that same hill, you ride the bike on that same hill, you tend to notice it. So they're traveling from, from Nazareth up to Bethlehem because Bethlehem's higher in elevation. And you see there in verse five, it says, he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, it's kind of interesting. They, they had censuses for two reasons. One was for military reasons and one was for tax reasons. And most likely this was a census for tax reasons for a, for a couple reasons that the, the Jews probably wouldn't have been involved in a military census. But it, it's kind of interesting that for the tax reasons, would Mary have had to gone to Bethlehem or not? And there's some debate over this. Uh, the Syrians had both the, the male and female register. Um, some believe the Romans didn't. But it's interesting that Mary went with them. So why did she go? Was Joseph trying to save the embarrassment of having this child without it been long enough to be married or, or they're not really married? Or was, was, did Joseph and Mary understand the prophecy that was happening about Bethlehem and about the Messiah? Probably so. And there's probably a number of reasons here. You, you can imagine that this young teenagers, when they, when they heard about Mary being with child and being from God and the, the angel appeared and spoke to both of them, you think they went back and looked at their Bibles? started looking at prophecy and kind of going, well, what's going on here? You see, God's moving, and God tends to use ordinary people to accomplish his purpose in his timing. So they went to Bethlehem to register, just like the scriptures in the past have said they needed to be, that that's where the, the Messiah child needed to be born. So in addition to them going, or they went, then you're going to see the second act of humble obedience. Mary gave birth, says, while there... The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now, it's really interesting here that Mary is obediently 
giving birth. She may not have had much choice, huh? She had to give birth. But I want you to see her heart. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 38. I think it may say uh, verse 3 on your screen, but it's actually verse 38. It says this, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. That, that was her response. That was her last response. After the angel spoke those words, she said, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And I was just starting to think, what if I responded that way? What if when the Lord started to knock on the door of my heart, saying to make that phone call or to, to do this or do that, what if I just said, Lord, I'm your servant? What if there was room in my schedule for that to happen? What if there was room at my table for that to happen? What if there was room in my house or in my bank account for that to happen? You see, Joseph and Mary were available. And Mary's heart is reflected here when she says, may your word be be, to me be fulfilled. Third act of humble obedience. It says here that not only did she give birth to her firstborn, a son, but she wrapped him in cloths. Now, that may not seem like a big deal at first, and the, 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 the scholars debate on why she did that. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? That's what you do with a baby. You, you want to you uh, imitate the womb, so you wrap them really tight. Some, some people even believe that it kept their limbs straight if you wrapped them tight when they were first born. But I wonder why Scripture talks about this over and over, the, the fact that Mary wrapped him in claws. Mary wrapped him in claws. Mary wrapped him in claws. Why is that so important? And I wonder if possibly it's pointing to something else. Maybe something her and Joseph would remember later. Maybe, her, maybe something that her and the followers of Jesus would remember later. Fast forward to Luke chapter 23, and we'll look at the story of another Joseph. Joseph from Arimathea, who was a, a Pharisee on the ruling council. And look how he responds to Jesus. He says, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. So he, he had voted against the fact of, 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 of crucifying Jesus. He said, he came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting on the kingdom of God. So there was room in his schedule, and there was room at his table, and there was room in his heart for the coming Messiah. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. So this was after the crucifixion. Then he took it down. He took it down from the cross, wrapped it in linen cloth. Isn't it interesting? That in addition to in the manger, there's another place that Jesus' body was wrapped, and it placed in a tomb. Shows the significance of this. And then the fourth act of obedience for Mary and Joseph was that they placed Jesus in a manger. It says here, not only did they wrap him in cloths, they placed him in a manger. It's the last act of humble obedience. And, you know, in our picture, in nativity scenes, we tend to have that manger, right, in the scene. It's made of wood. Most likely, it would have been made of stone. It's just what, what most likely would have happened in the area. There's tons of stone. It, that, that picture almost looks like where you could put a baby, doesn't it? It's even got the safety, you know, the safety edges on there. But it's pretty amazing. So she placed Jesus in a manger. When I was growing up, I thought the manger was the whole nativity scene. It's actually just the feeding trough. And it makes you wonder, why were Joseph and Mary in these humble circumstances? What was going on? And we'll get to that in just a minute. But she placed Jesus in a manger, a stone manger. Hey, go back to this story of Joseph Arimathea and look at this with me. Look at verse 32. Going to, 52, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down. He, he wrapped it in linen cloth. And what did he do? He placed it, not this time in a stone manger, but this time in a stone tomb, a tomb cut in the rock, one which no one had yet been laid. Isn't that interesting? See, all throughout the scripture, here's the idea. God, he uses ordinary people like you and like me, like this Joseph, 
like that Joseph and Mary to accomplish incredible things, to accomplish his purpose in his timing. Hey, back to our story one more time. You look at verses six and seven, it says this. It says, not only did they wrap him in claws and place him in a manger, and not only did she give birth, not only did they obediently go to Bethlehem, but why did she place him in a manger? You see it there? Because there was no room for them, guest room available for them. Now, scholars debate on what's actually going on here. If you, if you, if you go with us to, to Israel and you get to go to Bethlehem, it's kind of a, a hard area to get into at times, but if you get to go into Bethlehem, there's a church called the Church of the Nativity built right on the site where they believe that Jesus was born. And underneath it, there's this cave where they would have kept animals and, and it would, it's kind of what you picture. It's kind of what you think of. But there's actually another theory that when Joseph and Mary are traveling, there's, the, there's these places called caravanessery, and it's basically like you would imagine a Motel 6. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's got, you, you go inside, there's a courtyard in the middle, that's where the animals would have been left, and then there's these rooms all around with dirt floors that you would have stayed in. And, and regardless whether it's that place or the other place, there wasn't room for them. You see, it feels like they weren't waiting for the coming Messiah. And if you think about it, you know, there was a lot of years since those prophecies. There was the exile time. There was the, the 400 silent years. It, it would have been hard to remember, but there was Joseph from Erythemeia that was waiting on the coming Messiah. But there was no room for them. And it makes me wonder, what in my life needs to change in order to make room for the coming Messiah. You, you see, he's already come, right? He's already come, and he's coming again. And so what in my life might need to change? Or, or let, me, let me ask you to fill in this statement. In my life, blank needs to change in order to make room for the Lord. What if he came back and there was no room in our lives for him? We were so busy that we, we just tended to miss it. You see, he was born. He died. He rose again. Matter of fact, in John chapter 20, it says those cloths were discarded and left in the tomb. It's what Peter found when he went to the tomb. But Scripture also says he's coming again. So in, in your life, what needs to change? in order to make room for the Lord. In this holiday season, two weeks till Christmas, what needs to change in your schedule? Is there a conversation that you need to have? What needs to change in your heart in order to make room for the Lord? Because here's the idea. God uses people through their humble obedience to accomplish his purposes and his timing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful. Lord, you have chosen to use people like us, people like Mary and Joseph and Joseph of Arimathea, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to something that needs to happen so we'll be able to make room for you. And Lord, may that be the joy of our hearts. Would you sing with us once again? Would you stand? Let's sing joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. 
heard me speak about his first advent and then begin to talk about that second advent. And I want you to hear these words about his second advent. From Revelation 5, 5, it says this, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. Amen. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, fellowship, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over this kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Fellowship, let's worship the Lord together this season. 
May we be a light and a people who are making room in their heart. God bless you. Have a great week.